Welcome to Crashing the War Party. Me and my compatriot, Daniel Larson, are mucking about in the swamp of the Washington foreign policy establishment so you don't have to. Today, we are very lucky to have Emma Ashford, author of the brand new Oil, the State and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. But first, let's talk about Ben Sass. If you don't know much about the senator from Nebraska, he is your standard boilerplate mainstream Republican who is or is not running for president at any given moment. At a Reagan Foundation speech last week, he decided to distinguish himself on the foreign policy front by declaring that he was absolutely not like those weirdos on the far left and far right who engage in performance art and rampant defeatism about their country. He says, and I'm quoting now, the American people don't like defeat, but defeat is exactly where the loud isolationists long of the left and now of the right, have demanded we go. The catastrophe in Afghanistan is a stark example of how defeatism at home produces chaos abroad, he continued. The new isolationists present themselves as hard-headed realists, but it's not true. They're the ones with stars in their eyes as they ostrich see only one side of the balance sheet. They pretend that retreat from the world can focus us on, quote, nation building at home, and that this can cost come at no cost. But in reality, national security involves actual trade-offs, and the retreat they champion comes at a hard, high price, end quote. So he's obviously talking about the growing number of populist conservatives, think Tucker Carlson, J.D. Vance, even Josh Hawley, who have in recent weeks come out strongly against Biden's Ukraine policy, in particular the billions of dollars in weapons slushing into the country. They are asking whether it is in America's best interest to be fighting this proxy war with Russia. And wouldn't it be better to push Ukraine and Russia to come to terms and to end the fighting rather than bankrolling endless violence and pain for Ukraine? These are the, quote, defeatists um, and their cohorts like Tom uh, Cotton, um, whereas, I mean, Sass's cohorts like Tom Cotton can't recognize that Because for so long, the Republican Party had been a monolith of people like themselves, blindly supporting American primacy abroad, interventions, gargantuan defense budgets, and the idea that that if we weren't willing to show military strength at every opportunity, we'd be weak and discarded as a great power. But that's fooey. Not even Reagan was as reckless, um, but they abuse his memory as though he was. I hope someday that the sasses of the world are outnumbered, uh, Dan. But right now, I'm afraid this is the face of the Republican Party, and it'll be hard to get them to climb down from this dangerous path of escalation they are running on, um, even if if they are exposed as being wrong. Um, what do you What do you think about all of this? You know, I, I do think it's it's very dangerous, and with Sass's approach, you have someone who wants to. Uh, antagonize both Russia and China at the same time. A lot of his specific proposals in this speech have to do with ramping up our military engagement in the Pacific. Uh, He calls for a trillion dollar military budget, uh, which is a huge increase over what's already a gargantuan military budget today. And uh, he wants an explicit security commitment to Taiwan, and he wants to create what he calls a NATO for the Pacific. And and I, I sort of puzzled over the NATO for the Pacific idea because at first it didn't seem to to amount to very much. We already have multiple treaty allies in East Asia uh, and Southeast Asia. So why do we need 
a NATO for the Pacific. And it seems like he's one of these people who's started to freak out about Chinese influence in the South Pacific, uh, we've talked about before. And he thinks that the answer to this is to create some sort of new large military alliance to oppose them. Uh, and it seems to me that all, all of this uh, would be extremely expensive. It, it would add who knows how many new commitments uh, to the United States already uh, excessive list of security commitments, uh, and it puts us on uh, with the, with a security commitment to Taiwan puts us on a direct collision course with China. Uh, the costs of which would be uh, certainly far higher than anything uh, that would result from whatever it is he thinks that so-called isolationists want to do. And so the, the idea that going his way is somehow less costly or more prudent is is really absurd. Uh, when he is the one who's trying to sign us up for trillion-dollar budgets uh, per year uh, and endless conflict, um, and and there, there doesn't seem to even be any connection in his in the way that he sets it up between all of these new commitments and U.S. security. All of this is being done simply as a way to thwart China, on the assumption that if we don't thwart China everywhere, that uh, they are going to take over the world. And I, you know, I think we we learned from the Cold War that that's not how it works. Uh, even if that's what their long-term goal might be uh, to become the dominant power in the world, fighting them in dozens of peripheral places is irrelevant to the larger outcome. And and I I don't see any evidence that he's thought through that at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say something a little provocative here um, or controversial. I kind of feel bad for Van Sass. And I say that because, I say that because he's not the first one in the last few weeks that have come out with these um, these um, long, uh, turgid speeches about showing strength, peace through strength, um, lashing out against uh, so-called isolationists. We heard Tom Cotton at that National Review conference, uh, I believe, last month. Who, who made a similar um, outreach to uh, Republicans and conservatives. And, and, and what I'm hearing through all of, uh, all of the, the, the pretty words is that, please, please come home to us. And I think they're sending, they have sensed that the, the, the conservative base has split off from their um, reflexively hawkish position on foreign policy. Um, is it uniform? No. Um, is it is is the tide completely gone against the Hawks uh, and the neoconservatives in the Republican Party? Probably not. But I do think that they are sensing that the the Donald Trump um, position, uh, which had been against endless wars, or at least he vocalized that it had been suspicious of continued. Uh, role of the United States as a global police officer and had continued um, what had been up until that point, a conservative um, case against nation building, uh, which George W. Bush had made before 9-11 himself. Um, and I believe that they sense that that has the, 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 the popular appeal right now. I mean, we, we see that. And like I mentioned at the outset, uh, and people like Tucker Carlson, uh, you're 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 hearing it vocalized among other MAGA types. You know, even Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Matt Gates, uh, a host of other people who are Trumpy, 
um, feel that this is that 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 there has been a fundamental shift in the way that we see, view foreign policy and American uh, America's role in the world. Um, so they're lashing out and they're calling these people defeatists. They're calling them isolationists. You see that in the numerous uh, New York Times and Washington Post um, articles. And therefore, you see people like Kevin Roberts of the Heritage Foundation coming out and saying, well, maybe um, there's something to this uh, whole restraint argument. Maybe there's something to the the uh, criticism of the Biden Ukraine policy and sending $50 billion worth of weapons and aid. Uh, so you're even seeing the establishment types are starting to talk the language. And so I feel like SAS and, and, and Cotton are feeling uh, some of their power and authority being ceded uh, to this popular revolt or resistance. Um, that all said, I agree with you completely that when it comes down to Washington and the budgets, um, the language that SAS is talking is the language that Congress responds to uh, when they are building these budgets and passing these budgets, and it's completely hawkish. And um, so, I, I my my um, my uh, pity for. SAS only goes so far because I know what the real important thing is is getting is getting the money and the funding and um, you know his, these speeches are what's animating actual action on Capitol Hill right now. Right. Well, and, and he's he's clearly focusing on the China stuff because I think he knows that that's one area where Republicans of right. various stripes will tend to come together. Uh, I know. Uh, uh, there, there are, of course, there are still sort of hardcore anti-interventionists uh, on the right uh, like us that that are skeptical of all of that as well. Uh, but but the anti-China stuff does tend to play much better, uh, whether it's among pro-Trump Trump, Trump people or uh, traditional uh, hardliners or neoconservatives. Uh, it's it's one of the few things where they can all agree uh, that we ought to be uh, pursuing a much more militaristic and, and aggressive approach. And and so that's in a sense that's what worries me about Sass's speech, where he's able to smuggle in these really crazy notions. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe them, uh, of, of adding all of these new allies, of creating a security commitment to Taiwan uh, as part of the Taiwan Relations Act. He wants he wants to amend the Taiwan Relations Act to to in, embed that in the legislation, uh, and and all of that is propelling us on a course to ruin. Uh, but because it's all coded as anti-China, uh, the skepticism that people might have about interventionism in other parts of the world seems to just go out the window and people yeah. stop asking the necessary questions about well, what will this cost us? How, how, how will it advance U.S. interests? Uh, why isn't this just the same sort of colossal mistake that we've made in other parts of the world? Uh, and and I, you know, I think it it's useful to people like SAS that those questions aren't being asked as much, uh, certainly on the side, uh, on the Republican side, because I don't think they've got very good answers to any of those questions. Uh, and then, of course, that's why they have to amp up uh, their attacks on so-called isolationists, because whenever they can't argue on the merits, they, they throw around that slur. Uh, you know, of course, we're, we're very familiar with it uh, over the many years that we've been doing this. Uh, because that's that's the first sign that they don't have much of an argument when they have to resort to that. Yeah, I completely agree, and I, I think we we have our our work cut out for us when it comes to the China issue. 
And it's funny, uh, we have um, we have this war going on in Ukraine. We are heavily invested um, in seeing it through. We have a, a government, we have a White House that basically says that we're going to give Ukraine whatever it needs, no matter how long it takes uh, to, uh, to to fight Russia, to crush Russia. Uh, we have we have outlined Russia as an existential threat even to us in the West. Um, but yet we have these lawmakers going out and they're con- they continue to be obsessed with China and Taiwan. So either they are emboldened, you know, by what's happening in Eastern Europe and they feel like, OK, we, they're under some delusion that um, we have been successful on that front, that we can shift our attention and show uh, Xi Jinping, who is boss, or they want to ignore what's going on there. Um, you know, nothing to see here, pal. Uh, we really need to be focused on China. Either way, I feel it's folly. Um, and I agree with you that we're that that, that all of this rhetoric, um, which could translate into policy, uh, if if Ben Sass had his way, is just going to escalate tensions um, with uh, with Xi Jinping. Who, I mean, as much as I don't like the guy and I don't like China very much, they seem to have been more restrained than we are in terms of our rhetoric uh, in the wake of what's been happening in in Russia, Ukraine. Well, the, the Chinese government's position is, is a, a difficult one because they're they're trying to please a, a bunch of different constituencies at the same time. They want to maintain a good relationship with the Russians because they've invested so much time and energy in cultivating them as a security partner, as an economic partner. Uh, and so they, they can't come out right and condemn them for what they've done. But I, I think they don't really appreciate being... Uh, associated with the Russians when the Russians are behaving so destructively and, and dangerously in the world. And so it, they're, they're kind of embarrassed to have that new partnership uh, formalized or, or, or uh, stated as a, as a more formal partnership just weeks before they started this war. And so it was a, a real, uh, I think it was an embarrassment for them. And so they're, they're trying to to thread the needle uh, in a way that keeps them from making a lot of uh, very loud pronouncements. Uh, although, you know, I think in terms of their own domestic propaganda, uh, in terms of what they tell their own people, uh, they have generally tilted towards a, a pro-Russian view, uh, if only as a way of, of basically saying, you know, don't listen to the U.S. and, and their allies. Uh, you can't trust those people either. And so it, they're, they're trying to have it both ways. I'm just hoping that uh, come 2024, that at the at the very least, we have a mix of Republican candidates who um, on foreign policy uh, and maybe as, as, as much as we, we abhor what we're, we're hearing from Ben Sass and, and Tom Cotton, there is some uh, sense that there are other Republicans waiting in the wings who are coming from this new populist position on foreign policy, which could make the primaries fairly interesting if there is a real, you know, back and forth on 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 how we should be approaching uh, foreign policy uh, moving forward. Well, that would be interesting if it happened. I, I'm a little concerned that what we're going to end up with instead is is a, a bunch of competing demagogues, which which is kind of what we had in 2016 for right. the most part. Uh, and and Trump, of course, ended up being the biggest of them all and, and won out. 
Um, but even if Trump doesn't win, I think that that style of demagoguery uh, in place of a serious policy argument uh, is is what's going to prevail, I'm afraid, uh, because that, that seems to be what motivates people or it seems to be what really uh, catches their attention uh, a lot more than uh, trying to to guide the country in a, a better direction. So I, I hope I'm wrong about that. But uh, g- given the, the way that the GOP has been going the last few years, I, I tend to doubt we're going to get a lot of uh, serious policy debate. Our guest today is Emma Ashford. She is a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative and the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. She writes a bi-weekly column for foreign policy called It's Debatable. And she's also the author of an excellent new book, Oil, the State, and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we're very glad to have you on, and I, I enjoyed the book very much. I, I think our audience would get a lot out of it, and uh, we're looking forward to talking about it here. Uh, you identify three main types of petrostates in your book, the oil-dependent, the oil-wealthy, and super-producers, and you find that oil has a somewhat different effect on the foreign policies of states in each group. Can you tell us more about that and then how you came up with these uh, categorizations? Yeah, so so again, thanks so much for having me on to talk about the, the book. Um, it's, you know, one of those things where um, this book started as a, a very different book a long time ago. Um, but one of the puzzles that has sort of been been bothering me for a very long time, since back before I was I was in grad school, is, you know, we, we talk a lot about petrostates and oil-rich states and the importance that they have in international affairs, um, but we don't really ever define what it is we mean by petrostates petrostate, right? You say the word and it just conjures up these images of um, an oil rig and a camel in the desert. That's probably what most people think of first. Um, but states have different relationships with oil, um, and that shapes their, their foreign policy in different ways. So, you know, in the book, I basically present sort of three big ways that I think oil and foreign policy interact in states. Um, one is that it can make states extremely wealthy, Right. Um, You know, so you can get a very high per capita income, even if you're not a developed state. Um, You know, that wealth is really useful. Um, And then the second one is, you know, maybe your state ends up beholden to the resource curse, Um, you know, which we know from from comparative politics is this um, sort of economic and political dysfunction that can come out of being a major resource producer. And that has implications for foreign policy. Um, And then the third way is, right, maybe your state, maybe it doesn't have either of those first two problems. Maybe it does, but equally, it's a large global producer. Right, so a state that produces one, two, three percent of global supply, um, they have leverage, influence in in world affairs. And if you're you're a state like Saudi Arabia that produces, you know, twelve to twenty percent of global oil supply over the years, that comes with a lot of benefits. And so, you know, I think that thinking about the different ways that oil can shape states in their foreign policy is actually helpful in moving us past just these cliches about petrostates. And uh, one of the other interesting findings in your book uh, that's very relevant to what we talk about on this show all the time is that petrostates are more conflict prone than other states, all else being equal. Uh, How does oil wealth make these states more inclined to go to war and to start wars? 
So that's a really complicated question. Um, so despite everything I just said about different kinds of petrostates, um, what, what I actually do find is, statistically speaking, all three of those groups of states um, are, are more prone to start wars than others. Um, now, some are even more prone than others. So the oil-dependent states in particular, that's the ones that are all corrupted by oil. They're more prone to start wars. But but all petrostates seem to be prone to this. Um, and there are different reasons for it. Um, so in the book, I look at a variety of things that can encourage sort of conflict and aggression. Um, everything from, you know, petrostates help to prop up the global arms trade. They build up their militaries. Um, you know, petrostates are more prone to arm and fund proxies in other states that can result in conflicts. Um, and then sometimes, again, for those big exporting states, um, they often have a, a superpower or a great power that is providing them with some kind of security benefits, right? You know, the US and the Soviet Union um, at various times provided security benefits to petrostates during the Cold War, um, and that can make those states more likely to act out. So um, the, the conclusion was that as, as a whole, oil-rich states, um, they start more wars, but they do it for a variety of different reasons. Sure. And, and in some of those cases, it has to do with uh, the effects of oil in terms of corrupting and weakening institutions or keeping institutions weak and making foreign policy decision-making fairly arbitrary and, and uh, limited to a, a small number of people around the top political leadership. Uh, one, one example that comes to mind uh, in connection with that, uh, of course, is, is the Russian case. Uh, where it seems like they they seem to have thought that all of their modernization spending uh, would have gotten them a lot more military effectiveness than it did. Uh, do you think that the the sheer amount of money that they spent on their military diluted them into thinking that they would be uh, much more effective than they have been in, in fighting in Ukraine? I, I think so. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's funny because the book obviously was written long before the, the current crisis popped up. But I do have a case study on Russia's military modernization. Um, they had a pretty disastrous showing in their war in Georgia in 2008. Then they poured a bunch of money into the military and did some, some big reforms. And I think the assumption by almost all watchers of the Russian military was that this would make them more effective. Um, and instead, what we've actually seen over the last few months is that the Russians are exhibiting some some of these pathologies that I talk about in the book that oil-dependent states frequently have, um, that they have very weak institutions. Um, and typically, you know, we know that's true on the economic side, but it seems to be true even on the foreign policy side, that, that leaders in oil-rich states don't have good intelligence apparatus. They don't know, you know, in advance of a conflict whether they'll be successful or not. Um, their militaries are, are shot through with corruption. You know, they're, they're, as you say, their foreign policy decision-making is in a very small centralized circle of people. Um, and these are all things that we've seen in the Russian case, um, making them very ineffective in Ukraine. And as I've been watching this conflict, you know, I just keep thinking about in the book, there's also a case study of Saddam Hussein. Um, back in the 90s, making his decisions to go to war first against Iran, then to seize Kuwait in the run-up to, to the 1990 Gulf War. And in both cases, the pathologies look very similar to what we're seeing from Russia today. You know, thinking that they're going to win quick and fast because of the military, um, and that obviously isn't true. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, I have a question about that, but I also have other questions. And I thank you so much for giving Dan and I a sneak peek at the book. But I understand it's out. It's out this week, right? Mm -hmm. So anybody can yep. um, 
take a look at it. And I, I greatly encourage that. Um, I am fascinated by the whole idea of the resource curse. And you point out that countries such as Norway found their oil rich reserves um, when they were already democratic industrialized nations. And therefore they've been able to integrate this wealth into a diversified economy. Whereas oil dependent states, even the super producers and exporters like Saudi Arabia are autocratic and the wealth is not only undiversified, but it's not evenly distributed. And these countries remain some of the poorest and least democratic in the world. What happens if and when there is a shift away from fossil fuels? Will these countries in particular be able to handle the transformation? Are they behind the scenes fighting the transformation because they they know that they might not be able um, to survive it very well? So, you know, this is um, this is not an original insight of mine. This is an insight that comes out of the, the literature on the resource curse. Um, and it does raise some some really troubling questions um, because we know, you know, even if, um, you know, the, the current situation is that oil prices are high, there's more demand in the market than there is supply. Um, we know that's not going to last forever. You know, there will be downturns like we saw with COVID, like we saw with the 2008 financial crisis. And then eventually there is probably going to be some kind of green transition. The world is moving away from oil, you know, in the direction of natural gas, but then eventually probably in the direction of greener technologies. Um, and when that happens, and unfortunately the bad news is, um, um, these states are going to be left relatively underdeveloped in terms of state capacity. Um, they'll probably maintain many of these um, foreign policy pathologies and pathologies in their governance, um, but suddenly they will also be poor and have less influence on the world stage. And so, you know, that is that is not a pretty picture. Um, and I do think it's something that US policymakers maybe need to do a little more thinking about over the next decade is what do you do with all these countries that have spent so many decades building up their arms, you know, handling wars all throughout their regions, um, when suddenly maybe they're not doing that. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very different situation. And those countries could become a potential source of instability. You know, over the last year, I've seen headlines where you have the UAE or Saudi Arabia is talking up a pretty good game about diversifying and moving towards greener technologies. Do you buy that that's actually happening or is it just all part of this sort of like, um, you know, politically correct rhetoric of the time, what they're supposed to be saying, but maybe not necessarily doing? I'd say that's probably more true of the big uh, energy multinationals in the U.S. that they talk more about green energy than they're than they're really doing. Um, when it comes to petrostates um, like the Saudis, the Emiratis, you know what we're what we're mostly talking about is those states trying to diversify their economies so that when an inevitable oil crash comes, they're not left in the lurch. Um, and unfortunately, what what we know from having seen past attempts to do this is that it is it is very hard to do. Um, it's hard for these states that have been heavily dependent on oil wealth to wean their populations off all that social spending. It's difficult for them to dial down the, the military expenditure. Um, and, and what we've seen happen, you know, again in the last decade, um, as we've seen a number of times before, is these states implement very ambitious diversification programs like, like Saudi Vision 2030. 30. Um, and then when oil prices fall and they have trouble sustaining it, um, they typically back away 
from reform. So again, not necessarily a, a good news story there. They're going to find it very hard to do that. So just staying with Saudi Arabia for a moment, and I guess this kind of um, runs into um, the uh, the question about Russia and Iraq and their military capabilities. But, you know, they've certainly used uh, their immense oil wealth uh, to purchase a grand military arsenal from the United States, uh, but it's not known as the most capable military. In fact, it's overly reliant on the United States to train and maintain all of the arms and the weapons that we send them. Um, after decades of being a super exporter, why why hasn't the kingdom managed to be um, more independent of the U United States as a security guarantor? Why does it continue to demand um, that the U.S. be intimately involved in securing their country in the region. In other words, oil doesn't seem to have bought Saudi Arabia the ability to stand on its own two feet in all aspects. Why is that? You know, it's a combination of a couple of things. Um, so one is some some very common problems with the the U.S. sort of allies and partners structure that we have around the world, which which tends to incentivize um, you know states to buy arms that that maybe aren't the best fit for their own defense. It tends to you know push them towards high profile purchases and away from sort of low cost things like drones or air defenses that might be more effective. And so you know we see that in a variety of states. That's that's not a petrostate problem. Petrostates just have more money to, to throw at the problem. Um, but then with, with the Saudis in particular, um, you know, what we see is that they have been basically the recipient of security, if not guarantees, then at least a security umbrella from the US for many years. And that is the direct result of their oil exports. You know, this grew out of 1980 Carter Doctrine, um, the US committing to defend the flow of oil out of the Gulf, um, and the, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Bahrainis, they've, they've all benefited from this over the years. Um, and again, it disincentivizes them to invest more in their own defense in an effective way. Um, and, and here's the really sort of interesting part. Like, this is, this is known. This is something that we've known about for many years. Um, but the situation um, in the global oil market has shifted substantially. The Saudis don't really send their oil to the United States to the extent they ever did. They don't even really send it to Europe anymore. Now they mostly send it east to China, to South Korea, to Japan. Um, and so this means that that, that sort of relationship, um, it's sometimes described as like oil for security, which is way oversimplifying. Um, but that relationship is a, is a little out of whack now because the US is still providing the security. Um, Saudi Arabia's oil is not quite doing the job that it used to do. Continuing with the discussion of Saudi Arabia, th their uh, foreign policy decision-making uh, also shows some of the, these uh, erratic and impulsive elements that we see from some of the other uh, oil-dependent states. Uh, and we've seen with the, the Crown Prince's consolidation of power, he's further personalized a system that was already defined by weak institutions. Uh, based on your findings, do you think that Saudi Arabia will therefore become more aggressive internationally than it already has been over the last, uh, say, 10 years? I, I think we have seen 
it grow in aggression over the last 10 years. You know, I think, I think there has been a consistent pattern, um, not, not just with the rise of Mohammed bin Salman. It started to happen a little before his time, but, but I do think that the crown prince has accelerated things substantially. Um, and so I, I do think we're going to see the Saudis continue, um, to sort of engage and intervene in conflicts in their region. Um, and, you know, sometimes that might be stabilizing, sometimes it's going to be destabilizing. Um, but I think what we've seen is just their willingness to intervene rise substantially over the last decade. All right. Yeah, there used to be that they would they would pay others uh, for that privilege. Uh, now they're doing more of it themselves. Uh, one of the other uh, aspects of uh, oil and foreign policy that you delve into in the book, of course, is the oil weapon, which is a concept that many people have heard of and, and many people think that they understand what it is. Uh, but as, as you demonstrate in the book, uh, many people have a, a misunderstanding of, of how it actually worked in the past and how it, it might work today. Uh, and one of the interesting points you made is drawing a comparison between the use of economic sanctions and the oil weapon as both are attempts to use economic coercion to compel changes in others' policies, uh, and that they're they're both rarely successful in doing that. Uh, why is it that these economic weapons are so ineffective? Yeah, um, and so that that's actually it's funny. That's an area of the book that has rather been take overtaken by events with with the war in Ukraine. Um, so the oil weapon, as I discuss it in the book, is basically um, when a when a petrostate, when a big exporter um, threatens to shut off the taps. Um, if, you know, an importing state doesn't make some policy change, um, or sometimes they actually do it, right? Perhaps the best known case is the 1973 oil embargo, but, you know, Russia has done this a bunch. Um, and, and what I find through looking at a variety of cases of this is that the oil weapon is not nearly as powerful as people often assume. Um, it's been very ineffective in general. Um, it's almost always ineffectual when it's oil because the global oil market is so fungible um, and, and interchangeable. Um, when it comes to gas moving through pipelines, it can be more effective. But even there, a little like sanctions, it is very dependent on very specific conditions to work. You have to have a very lopsided dependency at play. Um, and you have to have some concession that is not so important to the importing state that they're willing to give it up. And so what I actually find, it's funny, is that the oil weapon, the gas weapon, is very useful at getting like price increases out of consumers. It's not so useful at getting foreign policy changes. Um, and, you know, even the current situation that we see in, in Ukraine with, with Russia and European states sort of arguing over oil, um, which is operating a much higher level than, than that discussion in the book, what we're seeing is that this continues to be a story of interdependence, not one of dependence, right? The Russians can't just shut off the taps because they need the revenue. The Europeans can't just um, shut off the revenue because they need the oil. And so this is fundamentally why that oil weapon is is not particularly useful in the first place. I, and I had just a quick follow-up on that because I, I, I feel like this was the million-dollar question of the book was why oil? You make a point at saying, you know, there are other resources and there are other countries that are rich on um, minerals, gas, you know, other resources that could make them quite powerful. But it seems as though the oil and the and the influence and the power attached to it is is unique. Did you come to any conclusion as to why that is? Yeah. So oil is 
relatively unique. I would say oil and gas. And that's what that's what I say in the book is oil and gas is hydrocarbons. Um, coal would have once been included, but it's not anymore. Um, they're relatively unique for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that they are absolutely essential to the functioning of the global economy, at least right now. You know, there is nothing that can replace them. And again, this is something we're just seeing on the headlines um, as, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine rolls on. Um, so they, they can't be easily replaced. Um, and then the second is that they're very valuable for military mobility, right? So there are serious military connotations to not having enough oil um, because you can't roll a tank up to a Tesla charging station, at least not yet. Um, and so, you know, those two things coupled with the fact the oil is only found in certain countries, um, you know, it's very geographically concentrated, um, basically does mean that there are there are importing states who are quite dependent, there are exporting states um, that are in a good place in terms of they export those resources, um, and makes oil pretty fundamentally different from other kinds of resources, right? Lots of countries grow trees. Um, nobody's military stops running if they don't have diamonds. Um, you know, and there have been other resources in history that met all these criteria. Um, so magnesium in the run-up to World War I, for example. Uh, bat guano might be my favorite from, from the 19th century that used to power um, various kinds of ships' engines. Um, but right now, today in this world, it's oil and natural gas. Thank you. And, and I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Emma, for coming on to talk about your book, uh, Oil, the State and War. Uh, the foreign policies of petrostates. Uh, thanks very much, and we look forward to having you on again. Great. Thanks again for having me. And congratulations. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>